morning and welcome to Rising. I'm Amber Duke, joined remotely by the one and only Jessica Burbank. And I'm glad to be joined remotely with you today, Amber, the one and only Amber Duke. All right, what do we have going on today, Jessica? Well, Amber, CNN's Clarissa Ward offered one of Western media's first attempts to report independently from Gaza since October 7th. Ward and her crew have published new video from a UAE field hospital set up in the south and warning the following is very hard to watch. As we leave Jinan, Dr. Al-Nakbi comes back with the news of casualties arriving from the strike just 10 minutes earlier. So just got us, they will send right now two amputated uh, young uh, male uh, from uh, the, just the bomb. You from get. the Kosovo we just yes. heard, from the bomb we just heard? This is uh, my understanding. Okay. They will arrive to our region. Yes, a man and a 13-year-old boy are wheeled in, both missing limbs, both in a perilous state. What's your name? What's your name? The doctor asks. The notes provided by the paramedics are smeared with blood. A tourniquet improvised with a bandage. Since the field hospital opened less than two weeks ago, it has been inundated with patients. 130 of their 150 beds are already full. Meanwhile, here in the States, News Nation's Chris Cuomo sat for the Israeli government's private showing of footage of crimes committed by Hamas on October 7th. Let's see his reaction. When a decision is made that Jews are less than human and treated that way, in words and deeds. I now know that is exactly the message Hamas sent on purpose, at scale. And I was not aware of that before. I had seen that bodies had been burned, but I did not understand or appreciate how intentional the effort was. They did it methodically. You hear it in the voices the commands, the ease, the excitement of finding and mutilating victims, being told, let them play with it. Merely murdering innocents was the least of it. Of course you see that, and you can see that anywhere in the world these days. People pointing weapons, shooting the innocent, shooting people running away, shooting women, shooting the defenseless, people scared out of their minds about what's happening. This was not death from above. It was death in your face, hands-on and personal. This week, dozens of Biden administration staffers held a candlelight vigil outside the White House, demanding their boss push for a ceasefire in Gaza. However, despite the president's own private admissions that Israel is losing international support over its imprecise and indiscriminate bombing of the Gaza Strip, Administration officials confirmed to CNN that Biden has no plans to shift its position and draw any red lines around the transfer of weapons and munitions to Israel. So, Jessica, I, 
I understand that people within the Biden administration have an issue with Biden's policy on Israel and outside the administration as well. But I would think as an intern, as a staff member, you're there because you're supposed to be helping to support whatever the administration's policy is. And one of the issues in the Trump administration um, between 2017 and 2020 was that he had a lot of staff who were not on board with his policies and actively blocked him from implementing some of them. So I think regardless of the justification for what they're doing or whether or not what they're doing they feel is right, it's not their job to be actively protesting someone that they decided to go work for. Right. What we're brushing up against is one of those like moral questions that's been in existence since it feels like the beginning of humanity, which is, is it fine if you're just following orders, even if you deeply morally disagree with those orders? Is it something that is justified to just say, this is the job that I accepted and it's my duty to do as I am asked? Or do you have to check in with your humanity and say, is this right or wrong? Does it matter if I'm being asked to do something by my superior that I find immoral? I must do it anyway because, you know, I'm a soldier, I'm a good employee, whatever. And I think a lot of people are really struggling with that today in the Biden administration, especially in the State Department, because a lot of folks become career staffers in the White House and in government because they feel a duty to do some kind of public service. And I can understand not feeling like it's a public service to support a, a state like Israel that's currently pushing Palestinians into a, a piece of land that the size of Heathrow Airport. There was a trending tweet that was, it's almost as if they are concentrating them into some sort of camp. You have the administration calling Palestinians human animals, that there are no innocents in Palestine, in Gaza. And so I think that's the, the, the real moral questioning that a lot of people are grappling with. Is it okay to treat people like that? Or do I just have to do as I am told and support this regime by extension of working in the State Department? And I can imagine being a young person just getting into politics within the last few years, being one of those interns in the State Department, uh, getting into government and public service. And this is what you're tasked with, with doing, with being the United States, supporting Israel with immense dollars and weapons. I can imagine it being a really difficult task to, to grapple with those moral questions. Yeah, I guess I just think at that point you would be better off probably just leaving because the reality is, is that these individuals in the State Department and other parts of the administration are unelected and they are there to support the policy positions of someone who was elected by the American people. And the American populace is split on the Israel-Palestine conflict, so it's not the case that Biden is necessarily going rogue against the people who elected him at this point. And so those staffers are there to support that mission. I wanted to talk as well about Chris Cuomo's reaction to that October 7th Hamas video, because I actually had the opportunity to watch that last week on Thursday as well. That was presented by the Republican Jewish Coalition as well as the Israeli embassy. And I just have to say that it was, frankly, the worst thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And when he talks about the dehumanization, he's not exaggerating. They refer to the people that they killed as dogs, as it, as settlers. They never once referred to them as actual human beings. And there was a video that we watched of people's heads being sawed off with um, serrated knives and then held up as trophies. There was a man who um, 
the Israeli, or excuse me, the Hamas um, uh, fighters or terrorists, I would posit, tried to actually cut his head off with a garden hoe by repeatedly striking him in the neck. There was a father who died shielding his kids from a grenade, um, and the children were thrown terrified into the kitchen as a Hamas terrorist took a soda out of the fridge and casually drank it in front of them after killing their father. Um, untold numbers of burnt bodies. And frankly, there have been people on this program who have denied the sexual assault that occurred on October 7th, claiming that because the Israeli police did not systematically collect rape kits in the aftermath of the attack, that that is perhaps evidence that none occurred, that no rape occurred. And if that person were able to see, I think the number of casualties, the piles of bodies just at that music festival alone, uh, we only got to see 10% of the deaths. I can't imagine um, requiring or thinking it would at all be feasible for Israeli police to be thinking about uh, putting rape kits on the burned, charred, mutilated, disfigured bodies that they are trying to identify for their families. Um, I think it's important that everyone who has the opportunity to watch that 47-minute tape do so to understand really what happened on that day. Yeah, I have a... A really hard time, you know, trying to process what's going on in Israel and Gaza to realize that this is what human beings can do. And I think about what Israel has has done in Palestine for so long, how they've pushed people out of their homes. Kids who are five years old have watched their parents be murdered by Israeli soldiers as they're pushed out of their homes, simply because Israel wants to occupy that land and doesn't want Palestinians on it or living in Israel. And then what does that person grow up to do? You have the mass scale of, of killing by Israel right now, the death toll being over 20,000, about 7,000 of those plus being children. Um, and that's being done with very sophisticated weapons provided by the U.S. military. And then you have Hamas, which, you know, is the, the forces that Palestine has to defend itself. They don't have the same weapons that America has. And you wonder what makes a, a person able to, to use those weapons in a very personal way. It's much more intimate to kill someone w with a, a knife than with white phosphorus, than with a, a tomahawk missile. Uh, it's pressing a button versus literally seeing someone die before your very eyes. And I think it's possible because they have watched Israel do this to their family since they were children. What humanity is left in someone that's been forced into a confined space and barely live a free existence thanks to Israel with no parents because they watched their parents be killed before their eyes. That is what breeds the kind of terrorism that we are seeing in the Gaza Strip. And I can imagine the dehumanization comes from Israel directly using the rhetoric that we are fighting human animals. None of them are innocent. And I can imagine they feel that way about Israel, because how can you see someone as a human if they treat all of your people like that? And so what's happening is absolutely disgusting. And I think that if, if Chris Cuomo and members of the media that were shown that footage, they should also be shown the footage of the atrocities occurring in Gaza. Many of them have been posted on the internet for people to watch, but children's bodies absolutely burned by Israeli soldiers. They should be forced to watch what Israel has been doing since before October 7th to understand where we are now. It feels 
uh, very one-sided to have members of the media monologuing about the, the footage that they've been given by the Israeli embassy before they do a monologue on the footage of what's happening in Gaza, where the death toll is 20 times what was on October 7th. Well, the footage that was given was recorded by Hamas terrorists on their own cell phones and picked up from CCTV footage, CCTV footage. And on this program for weeks, actually months since the conflict started, every single week I've been on here acknowledging the death toll of the Palestinian people and acknowledging that Israel's bombing campaign is not acceptable and acknowledging the horror of what we've seen there. And I just, I just want to hear a single condemnation of what Hamas did on October 7th to at least present that side on this program without a long justification about how cutting people's heads off and then calling the commander about how they need to send pictures immediately because the soldiers are playing with the heads. I, it's, it's just mind-blowing to me that me talking about watching that video was immediately met with some whataboutism and equivocation. I think it's because what's happened in Palestine for so long by the hands of Israel has been largely ignored by the American media. And we're in a moment where people are finally talking about the atrocities that are occurring between Israel and Palestine. And most of the time, the conversation is not being had with the context of the greater war at hand, of the occupation of Palestine, of how gruesome it has been for the Palestinian people. And I think it's upsetting when more sympathy is given to one group over another because they're an ally of the United States or simply because the color of their skin is lighter than the color of Palestinian skin. There have been decades of atrocities that have gone entirely ignored by the media. So I have a very hard time giving airtime to what happened on October 7th and the 47 minutes of footage we have of what occurred that day uh, when there are years of suffering and silence for the Palestinians. It doesn't sit right with me. And so that's why I think okay. we can talk about both at once. We can talk about how disgusting it is I think that humanity has and come to this. And we can say that perhaps there there is a better way forward understanding all of the context at hand. I think we can talk about both and we do on this program a lot. We have certainly watched the footage of what's happening in Gaza. I would challenge you, Jessica, to watch what happened on October 7th as well. We'll be back with more Rising next. Rumor has it that Vice President Kamala Harris has been telling colleagues in the White House, including President Biden himself, that his administration should show more public concern for the situation unfolding in Gaza. This is according to reporting from Politico. But Harris's press secretary wrote on X yesterday, there is no daylight between the president and vice president nor has there been, and media should be cautious and discerning about including anonymous sources who are not privy to their private conversations. John, why does somebody around here leak that the vice president is upset with the president about Gaza? And that's a great question, because I just, I mean, if, if, I, if I could answer a question why somebody would leak I mean, that would make me pretty smart and a lot smarter than I am. Uh, uh, the, let me just, just give me a second here. Uh, you've seen us officially and on the record, not in a leak, re refute the basic premise of the story, that there's some sort of daylight 
between the vice president and the president. I found the headline of the story interesting, that that the vice president is pushing the White House to, you fill in the blank, X, Y, Z. Last I looked, the vice president is part of the White House. She's part of the team. And if she wasn't offering her advice and counsel to the president on innumerable issues, that would be a story. Her job is to provide advice and counsel to the president. White House columnist at the Hill, Niall Standage, joins us now to weigh in. Niall, I have to say, when I read this story, I thought, who else benefits from this but the vice president herself? The president is hemorrhaging support among Arab Americans and young voters. It seems quite strategic for Kamala Harris to try to create this perception that there is daylight between her and the rest of the administration on the Israel-Gaza conflict. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, if you look at the Democratic Party, there is a, a wound running right up the middle of the Democratic Party about this issue of Israel and the Palestinians. And we see a large number of particularly younger and more progressive voters being more sympathetic to the Palestinians. There has clearly been real rage among that segment of the Democratic about the attitude or the line that President Biden has taken. If we assume, and I think we can, that the vice president has at least one eye on her future ambitions, then it makes sense for her to at least purport to show some degree of sympathy for that more progressive line. Sure, and she was just heckled by a Democratic state lawmaker um, during a holiday speech. This individual was calling for a Gaza ceasefire. She reacted quite acerbically to that, saying, I'm speaking right now. Mm. Um, and this, of course, also comes with the context that Biden is very unpopular, even among the Democratic base, and there have been a lot of calls for someone else to run in the primary, either against him or in place of him. Um, do you think that this, this heckling moment perhaps bothered Kamala. I mean, this leak came not too long afterward. I'm not sure if the, if the heckling bothered her, but obviously there is questions about what comes after President Biden. Now, I don't take the view that he would face any serious primary challenge. I mean, we have people like Dean Phillips, who I don't frankly consider terribly serious. I'm thinking about people like Gavin Newsom or Kamala Harris herself or other people like that challenging him. I don't envision that happening. But at some point, it's going to be a post-Biden era. And Kamala Harris needs to uh, protect and, if possible, burnish her reputation for that eventuality. She hasn't really done so. And what she has done in office. Her approval ratings broadly are pretty bad. They're approximately the same as President Biden's. So certainly she would have to improve those ratings and have to appeal more to the party than she has done up to this point. Let's let Jessica jump in here. Jessica, take it away. I'm curious your thoughts, if it's possible at all, that this is a strategy shared by Joe Biden and Kamala Harris for the 2024 run, because there's so much discontent among loyal, typically, Democrats around the issue of how Israel has acted in Gaza since October 7th. Is it possible that, that Biden actually wants Kamala Harris to defect a little bit so that they claw back some of those voters who might feel, well, now it's a balanced administration. Do you think that's plausible? I, I see where you're going with the question. I just don't think that an exhibition of division typically helps a White House. And I think that's the drawback in that kind of strategy. I think to address the problem that you just correctly identified there, Jessica, I think that's why we're seeing differences in President Biden's rhetoric, where he is now talking about Israel having engaged wrongly in indiscriminate bombing, as he sees it. That is the kind of language that we didn't hear from him earlier in the crisis. I think it's worth mentioning that President Biden himself is clearly 
and sincerely very pro-Israel. I mean, he tells that story numerous times about meeting Golda Meir when he was a young senator, being very impressed by Israel as he sees it fighting for its life, for its existence in the early, early decades of it, you know, having been created. The point is, I think that there's a real generational divide between people of President Biden's age who do tend to see it as this sort of plucky democracy in the Middle East and Democrats of a younger generation who see it as a regional superpower underwritten by the United States, essentially, uh, well, certainly occupying the West Bank and repressing Palestinian rights. How much uh, of this do you see really as, as true strategy and the political base, the voters that typically go more progressive, more Democrat, uh, their opinion on the Israel-Gaza situation shaping perhaps Kamala Harris's strategy uh, to have a leak or to secretly be critical of the president's handling of Gaza? Or, or is it genuine? It, do you believe Kamala Harris could genuinely not support the way President Biden is so close with Netanyahu, given everything that's gone down in Gaza. So I think Kamala Harris is a little bit at least more attuned to the progressive uh, sensibility on these things. And she's not of the same generation as President Biden, which tends to be a very vigorously pro-Israel generation. And to the point about strategy and how the strategy is a reflection of political pressure, I think that um, Democrats who are sympathetic to the Palestinians have, I think, genuinely created some level of movement on the part of the administration to try to be at least a little more even-handed. Whether that is to their liking or to the extent that they want, I think probably not, but they have at least created some level of movement by virtue of their pressure from the left, I think. Niall, this is also not the first time that there has been this perceived division between Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. There were reports shortly after the inauguration that Dr. Jill Biden was quite unhappy that Kamala supposedly, or, or, or suggested rather, that Joe Biden was a racist during one of the early Democratic primary debates. Joe Biden has put her in charge of the border and voting rights, both issues that were almost sure to be either failures or perceived as failures on behalf of the administration. Um, so this is really only the latest issue um, there. What do you think is, is sort of the current posture between Joe Biden and Kamala Harris? Is there still that tense relationship that they've seemed to have over the past couple of years? By all accounts, on a sort of one-to-one -one basis, there isn't that much tension, but I think you're right to bring up those two issues that you mentioned. Firstly, that famous debate performance, which was about the issue of school busing, right. and Kamala Harris, as a candidate, really been very critical of then-candidate Biden, with this implication that, as you say, he was racist. I mean, that's obviously going to elicit a big uh, counter-reaction from now President Biden and from the people close to him. The other point I think is even maybe underreported, which is the fact that Kamala Harris was kind of sandbagged in a way by the issues that she was given to work on. Like, oh, just sort out immigration. <laughs> like, how does one even begin to do that in the current situation? I know she talks about addressing the root causes. I think it's right that you do have to address the root causes, but that takes years. Voting rights has proven obviously extraordinarily difficult to uh, get any progress or action on. Yeah, I think you're right that she has been sandbagged to an extent that's probably the right term. All right, we're going to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us, Niall, and hopefully come back soon on Rising. Thank you.
It's beginning to look a lot less like Christmas at the Biden White House and a little bit more like a funhouse from hell. Twitter was ablaze yesterday over a video posted by First Lady Jill Biden celebrating the Christmas season with a rendition of the Nutcracker Suite. Let's take a look at some of that. Many conservatives were quick to bash the video. The Babylon Bee's Ashley St. Clair took to X to compare the clip to the Capitol from the Hunger Games, while the Federalist Peachy Keenan quipped, do the Nutcracker, but take away all the things that makes it a beloved classic and add as much diversity as possible. More research into the clip revealed that the dance troupe responsible, Durant's Dance, was a far-left communist group that called for defunding the police, abolishing prisons, and pushed divisive racial politics. But some attempted to defend the performance and argued that criticisms of the group were based in racism. Rising's own Brianna Joy Gray reposted the clip with the caption, Outrage around this is confusing because white racists used to love tap dancing blacks. So my whole thing is no one thought a dance routine with outfits was too much. Like, let's just back up. Let's start there. No one was planning this and they were like, wait a minute. Could we perhaps be doing the absolute most for no reason at all? Do we need to release a promo video for the White House holiday party? Like, let's just start there. This is unnecessary. Yeah, I think you're probably right. And and to be fair, I don't think the dancing in the video was bad, but it was bizarre to me that they didn't choose more festive outfits. I mean, you have the main character, I guess, the main dancer in this sort of sequined tutu that looks like it belongs on the Vegas Strip. You have a guy with a random flower on his head. None of it really screamed Christmas to me. And then you have these really bizarre camera angles that zoom in incredibly close on these people's wide grins and wide eyes. It looks a little bit less like holiday joy and a little bit more like the ring camera from the Purge movies. Remember, Amber, when they found cocaine at the White House? <laughs> I think oh we know where it went. <laughs> energy in this video. It's good to have high energy when you're a performer. I get it. That's dance. That's theater. But this is a little much. I think many people are agreeing that this is a little bit too much. You're right to point out their facial expressions. There's just something off about this. It's giving blink if you need help. And I, I agree about the outfits. Are they supposed to be nutcrackers or are they soldiers? And I think today's the first day I'm realizing that nutcrackers are always dressed like British soldiers for some reason. Don't know where that came from. But I would rather have a holiday video from the White House of their holiday party where we're, we're filming the party. We're getting some of the conversations. And then we have confessional with the cabinet members about what's going on in the party. Very reality TV Jersey Shore style. America would love that. I don't know what this is. This tap dance is not big right now. I don't know where this came from. 
I love this idea about a White House Christmas party reality show. If we could just get someone to break the fourth wall, that would be everything that I've dreamed of and more. I also want to point out that a friend of mine went to one of the Christmas parties for the press and pointed out that they didn't have any light beer there, which just seems anti-American. Yeah, where was the Bud Light at? I would like to know. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think they just could have posted a photo of like Jill and Joe and the, the dog that, that bites a lot under the Christmas tree. And we would have been satisfied. We didn't need a promo video for the holidays from the White House. There's war in the Middle East. Why are people dancing through the White House halls in tutus? I think that's why it's very Hunger Gamesy because it's like, what is going on in the White House? They came in to film this. Presumably, Joe had no knowledge of this before it went out. And this is just like a project for PR so that we're like, oh, happy times, holidays at the White House. No, people are struggling to pay their bills. They're worried about funding of $886 billion worth going to the Pentagon when they failed six audits. But look at these people dance in fun costumes, fun sparkly costumes for the holidays. Isn't that great? It does feel incredibly tone deaf with people struggling so much this economic or economically this holiday season with inflation and supply chain issues that are persisting. As you mentioned, there's several wars going on around the world. Um, this is not obviously the type of tone that you want to be putting out as the White House, um, given the current conditions that people are facing. And I also just think about how much criticism that Melania Trump got for her Christmas decorations from the media when Trump was in office. They said that she had blood red murder trees that looked like a holiday horror show. They panned her for having these icy white branches. And I get that the minimalist style isn't for everybody, but they really went in on her in such an unnecessary and I think really mean-spirited way. And this video just reminds me of how unfair that criticism was especially since Jill clearly went out of her way to pick a group that politically doesn't align with most of America. I just don't understand why you would pick something that is almost seems intentionally meant to be divisive. It's deeply unsettling in the opposite direction to Melania. When the criticism was that, you know, it's very elite, it's very cold. Minimalism has been a kind of expensive design trend, the very expensive white marble. It's a lot of cleaning time and money to have your whole house be this kind of minimalist white, lots of empty space that collects dust. I think that style that we got from Melania had this negative feedback, but this is also elite, also concerning, deeply disconcerting to watch this, but in the opposite direction. It's like you are doing absolutely too much. There's too much color. No one has this in their home. No one's like, we're going to have tap dancing people in our home for Christmas. Why is the White House being turned into a theater? I think it's weird. And I think we have to put an end to it before they keep doing this. I think we, the American people, don't want to see this. Just show us a video of you decorating like normal people. It's what was the meeting like, Amber, do you think, where they said, <laughs> we're going to put out a video and there will be tap dancers in costumes there was a group of people that deliberately went through every details of this there was possibly multiple takes it's not just a video that came from nowhere and the more i think about it the more questions i have 
I saw someone pointed out on X as well that apparently later on in the video, the tap dancing sounds don't even match the way the people's feet are moving or the surface that they're tapping on. So apparently the tap dancing was pre-recorded and then dubbed over the actual music video, which is another, I guess, fascinating development in all of this. But I, I think we need to um, put a stop to this until we can figure out what the hell is going on. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Abortion is headed back to the Supreme Court. The justices have agreed to take another look at whether Mifepristone, a common abortificant, will be allowed to remain widely available. The challenge to Mifepristone comes as conservatives and GOP representatives battle internally to determine a cohesive message on abortion and family planning. Meanwhile, conservative Twitter was recently abuzz as YouTuber Shane Dawson joined the long list of gay men to have a surrogate carry children for them. Dawson has come under fire for questionable content in his past. Here to discuss the conservative plans for abortion and surrogacy in the future is Emma Waters, a research associate at the Heritage Foundation. Emma, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on today. So as someone who's spiritual and a woman, I think about, you know, childbirth and carrying a baby as a, a very personal thing. And the surrogacy industry is expected to increase a, increase a thousand percent uh, before 2032. So I think about this as being terribly afraid, not of su surrogacy in itself, but it being extremely commodified. Do you want to say your reaction to that and a little bit about how the conservative view on abortion and surrogacy is perhaps linked? Yeah, absolutely. So you're absolutely right that there is a lot of concern about the commodification of women's bodies and even of babies. So the thing that a lot of people don't know is that surrogacy and adoption are actually very different legal processes. So with adoption, at no point does money change hands between the woman giving up her baby and the prospective couple. But in surrogacy, it's done on the very basis that the woman is getting paid upwards of fifty to $70,000 to carry, gestate, and birth a child for the other couple. And she's getting paid at different points. Additionally, in adoption, prospective parents go through many background checks, home interviews, and interviews to ensure that they are the best possible couple for this child. But in surrogacy, we have no laws that require intended parents to do this. So in the most recent case of Shane Dawson, for example, he has a long history of making pedophilic comments online, being denounced by Hollywood A-listers for his interactions with younger guests, and also making comments where he said that he was actually Googling child porn or abusing his cat. These are incredibly concerning things that if he were going through a traditional adoption process, he would likely not be approved. But because surrogacy allows effectively anyone to create a child and rent another woman's womb, he had full access to it. I recently learned as well, Emma, that apparently international adoptions have fallen quite significantly because of the potential for those children to be commodified essentially through human trafficking. And there's also the question of what happens to the baby when it is separated from the woman who was carrying it. Um, in adoption, um, I think conservatives view, view it as trying to make good out of a, a situation that is bad, um, trying to get a, a child into a loving home. Um, when the mother can't take care of it. But in surrogacy, the child is created expressly for the purpose of separating it from its mother. Can you speak to that? 
Yes. So this is a huge point. Like you said, with adoption, it's an attempt to right what was a primary wrong, which is the child being separated from its biological mother or father for any number of reasons. But in surrogacy, you're actually intentionally creating this mother-father loss. So oftentimes you're using donated egg or sperm so that the surrogate-born child will never know, um, or at least not for a very long time, who his biological parents are. And then for the baby inside the womb, that baby doesn't know that the surrogate isn't his mother. And we do have copious studies that show that that time in pregnancy is such a powerful bonding experience for the baby. He's learning the sound of the mother's voice. He's learning the environment that she's in. And they're even sharing fetal cells through a process called fetal mycochimerism, which actually enables the baby's cells to remain with the mother for nearly a lifetime, oftentimes saving the mother's life even though she's only the surrogate mother. So this connection between the two is so incredibly powerful. And yet with modern technology, like in vitro fertilization um, and easy international laws, it's easier than ever to abuse this dynamic and effectively create children by any means by any woman. Emma, could you explain for our viewers a little bit about what policies or laws maybe the Heritage Foundation supports to address uh, surrogacy and the the tendency for people to you know purchase or as you say rent a woman's womb rather than adopt the many children up for adoption Yes, absolutely. So one of the first priorities that we're addressing is the presence of foreign nationals coming from other countries to use surrogates in the United States. This is a massive problem that actually sidesteps all of the immigration laws that we have in the United States. And so most developed countries, except for Ukraine and the United States, have actually banned or severely limited foreign nationals coming to their country to use surrogates because of how exploitive the industry is. So for example, India which was one of the largest international surrogacy hubs, actually forewent a $2.5 billion annual um, industry because of how bad it was for the women and children involved. And so one of the first things that we would like to see is the United States puts, puts a severe limits or outright ban foreign nationals from coming to the United States to have children here, especially because of birthright citizenship. These babies actually gain and maintain the full rights of U.S. citizenship, even though they do not intend to live here for any meaningful amount of time. Um, and the second would be we need to remove the money from this business. The last thing that the United States needs to be a part of is an outright baby selling industry where there's lots of money changing hands between quote unquote donor eggs and donor sperm agencies and individuals, as well as money changing hands between surrogates and parents. If anything, this should be treated like the organ donation industry or adoption, where there are many um, interviews taking place, um, where there's no money going back and forth, and we're ensuring that children are the ones who are actually ending up in the best possible scenario. Let's go back to this SCOTUS case. They're set to look at methepistrone, which is a um, basically an abortificant pill that women can take at home to simulate the effects of a miscarriage and abort their child without um, hospital intervention. What will the Supreme Court specifically be looking at in terms of whether or not this pill should remain widely available? Is this primarily a question about the safety of this medication? 
So the current case that they have right now is looking at a 2016 and 2021 claim where pro-life doctors who were treating women um, in post-abortive care were realizing that the removal of regulations um, primarily spurned by the um, pandemic has actually put women in further harm's way. So the current case is looking at the removal um, of the requirement for women to see a doctor. So during the pandemic, there was actually a push in some places for women to receive this incredibly powerful, um, and in many cases, very dangerous drug through the mail without first meeting with a doctor to ensure that they didn't have an ectopic pregnancy, that they weren't further along than they thought, or that they didn't have un other underlying conditions that actually make taking this abortion pill very dangerous for the life of the mother. But it does harken back to the, 20, the 2001 decision by the FDA, where they approved this drug under a fast track authority. And so what's so bizarre is in order to approve a drug through the fast track authority that they used in 2001, they had to say that pregnancy was a serious or life threatening illness. And note, this wasn't just referring to high-risk pregnancies. They said that all pregnancy is a serious or life-threatening illness. Therefore, we can justify providing this abortion pill without going through the proper testing measures, which inevitably puts a lot of women in harm's way when they assume that the FDA has done its due diligence in testing the effects of this drug before allowing it on the market for popular use. Is it your view that the best way to move forward is in the case of surrogacy, the criminalization would be on the side of the purchaser rather than the woman? I understand that you know there, there are surrogates that have dedicated their entire lives uh, to giving birth to babies and essentially you know, offering this as a service in exchange for dollars. But I understand that there are many women that are doing this out of economic need or desperation and criminalization uh, of that seems unjust to me. Likewise, perhaps in the case of prescribing abortion pills or providing them without doctor's prescriptions, would you see it justified as well that maybe criminalization happens on the side of the pharmaceutical company or, or the seller of the abortion pill rather than the recipient who might also be in a dire situation? Yes, absolutely. For the abortion pills, you want to see the pharmaceutical companies, you want to see the FDA held responsible for these decisions, because ultimately Americans look to these agencies to provide sound and well-tested outcomes so that you can trust the medicine that they're putting on the market. And any time that a study is fast-tracked or necessary safety precautions are removed, that's the decision of these major regulatory agencies. It's not the decision of individual women who are seeking out um, options in their pregnancy. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. Emma Waters, thank you so much for joining us today on Rising. Of course, let's do it again soon. Congressional Republicans have attempted to continue Ukraine funding to drastic policy changes on the southern border, changes that the Biden administration seems to be taking seriously. The White House indicated it would be willing to support a new border authority to expel incoming migrants without asylum screenings and expand migrant detention and deportation procedures in exchange for foreign aid. Congressional Democrats have attempted to paint Republican efforts to tie border policy to Ukraine spending as short-sighted and dangerous. During last Sunday's edition of Meet the Press, Senator Chris Murphy claimed that if Republicans didn't give up, on pushing border policy, Russia would march into Ukraine and China would be given a green light to invade Taiwan. Watch. 
Republicans would argue, many of them, they're not calling to completely shut down the border, but as you say, to make it tougher to get through. If you look at the poll numbers, the latest Wall Street Journal poll shows a whopping 64% of people disapprove of President Biden's handling of the border. Does that add pressure on you, on Democrats, to get something done here? Well, listen, I'm not paying attention to the politics here. What I know is that the future of the world is at stake. If we fail, if Republicans don't get reasonable in the next 24 to 48 hours, um, Russia is going to march into Ukraine. China is going to be given a green light to invade Taiwan. The world for my children is fundamentally different under that scenario. The United States security is at risk. So I am just beside myself that Republicans are playing games with the security of the world. Here to discuss the border and how immigration is shaping the American political landscape, our investigative immigration reporter at The Daily Caller, Jenny Tear, and humanitarian activist, Charles McBride. Welcome to the show, both of you. Charles, I wanna start with you. You've been on the ground in Ukraine during wartime. What do you make of what Chris Murphy is saying there about international security? And what do you make of these two issues being tied to each other by our members of Congress? Afternoon, Jessica. Uh, yeah, I'm in a rare position of agreeing with Chris Murphy completely here. I think the United States commitment to Ukraine is absolutely essential in what used to be a cut and dry bipartisan issue. It's quickly becoming a very contested one. Republicans are attempting to tie a foreign policy necessity to a domestic um, dispute, and they are using it as to, to ransom Congress uh, in order to get their domestic agenda pushed through. I think that's entirely inappropriate, given that the conditions uh, regarding the war in Ukraine are incredibly volatile, having from a foreign policy standpoint, and they have nothing to do with the domestic troubles at the U.S. border. Let's bring Jenny in here, because, Jenny, you can speak to the border perspective of this issue. You've been to the border several times for your reporting. Um, can you speak to the fact that the border is not just a domestic dispute, but also a national security issue because of the lack of screening of people who are coming across? Absolutely. That's what's been happening for years now under the Biden administration. And we've seen, you know, even memos going out recently. Uh, we obtained one that Border Patrol had received about the potential of Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and other terrorist groups uh, seizing on the border situation right now, seizing on the fact that catch and release is occurring. And that's exactly what Republicans don't want out of a supplemental funding bill right now. So I wanna quickly follow up. Have there been cases where folks have been detained at the border and have been proven to be jihadists or members of Hamas? Not at the moment. We've seen uh, certain cases where people have slipped through the cracks uh, and in different ways been released by ICE, or I'm sorry, released by local authorities. ICE has tried to issue detainers on individuals that are of national security concerns, people who have been released by Border Patrol, and then they find out later that that person was actually a fugitive um, from their country. And the problem is that people slip through the cracks because Right now, the uh, priority is efficiency. And so when you're trying to get people out of custody, sometimes within 48 hours, you don't have time to get the information back from the home country. And a lot of these countries are recalcitrant as well. Charles, what do you make of, of this case that border security, you know, is a threat to national security as it relates to the conflict in Israel-Palestine? 
You, you know, I think manufacturing a moral panic about Palestinian Islamic Jihad or Hamas members infiltrating through the southern border is exactly what I would expect from today's Republican Party. I think it's a completely groundless uh, accusation and just a way to stir up uh, moral panic around the border crisis to tie it to current events. I think something that's, that's rather interesting is that some of the populations coming through the southern border and through the northern border with Canada are actually Ukrainian refugees who are fleeing from the war in Ukraine, which is a very real national security threat both to the United States and to the Western democracies in Europe, rather than kind of a, a manufactured idea about um, Hamas militants sneaking through our southern border. There's just absolutely nothing to back that up. Well, I would point out that there have been several suspected Hamas terror terrorists arrested in Europe by sneaking across the border there, seeking to gain weapons with which to attack Israelis. But on the question of the border as well, it's not just Hamas terrorism that's a potential issue. Jenny, The Daily Caller has reported on the fact that known or suspected terrorists from other countries have also made their way into the United States through the porous border. Yeah, and I would also say that you know, through the 9-11 Commission report, we did find that there was a nexus with the southern border uh, that Congress had found, you know, that was reported that was one of the ways that terrorists were trying to infiltrate the country. In addition to that, there was a plot to assassinate George W. Bush that was also thwarted that had a nexus to the southern border. So I want to talk a little bit about, you know, these two issues being tied together and, and funding being held in suspense. Matt Gates, when, you know, we had the whole McCarthy debacle, was really fighting for this kind of exchange of his vote and his faction, the Freedom Caucus's vote for a speaker in exchange for, for essentially piecemealing funding, voting issue by issue. I think the, the border issue requires policies that will take months, if not years, to devise and perfect. Whereas the war in Ukraine is a much more urgent situation. Charles, do you think that's a, a fair comparison there and a, a reason perhaps why these two policies shouldn't be tied together, especially when it comes to funding right now? I think you're absolutely correct, Jessica. The war in Ukraine is a, is a separate issue as far as I see it. It's a very clear policy stance from the United States, which is to give as many weapons as possible to the Ukrainians as they resist Russian fascism. What's happening at the southern border is an ongoing dispute that's been going on for decades and something that's going to take a, a really long time and a lot of various policy um, proposals to deal with. And that's going to, the implementation of those is going to take a lot longer than the implementation of immediate aid to Ukraine. And one is far more urgent than the other. Charles, a follow-up for you there. Um, how much money do you think the U.S. would have to send in order for Ukraine to have a shot at winning this war? And what do you see as a reasonable conclusion? Are both sides going to have to come to negotiations and reach some kind of peace deal? Or does Ukraine have basically a snowball's chance in hell at actually defeating Russia? Ukraine has far more than a snowball's chance in hell. They've, they've had the Russians on the ropes for the past year and a half and have liberated vast swaths of Ukrainian territory that was taken in the, in the, in the earlier part of the year. I think there's a fiction that people, some people in the United States live under that this is NATO's war or this is some sort of proxy war between the United States and Russia. I've been to Ukraine, I've talked to Ukrainians, and they are in this fight for themselves. They're going to continue fighting whether or not we help them, but the best thing that we can do is send them money. And I think Americans also labor under this illusion that we're just we're just bringing duffel bags full of cash and giving them dropping them in Zelensky's office. That's not what this is. Lethal aid to Ukraine 
typically consists of dragging up a bunch of old military equipment out of storage, stuff that's been almost obsolete for the past 20 to 30 years, and giving it to the Ukrainians where it can actually be useful on the battlefield. So the idea that we are just pulling money out of thin air and giving it to the Ukrainians, money that would be going to other programs in the United States, is a fiction. We're giving them lethal aid primarily, which has been mothballed because it's, it's, it's out of date. It's obsolete by U.S. military standards. So it's, it's a really good deal for the United States, and we should continue to do it. I don't think you need to attach a specific dollar amount number to that. And insofar as what the United States commitment to Ukraine should be in regards to the war with Russia, Ukraine needs a secure border more than the United States does at this moment. Ukraine has a very porous border because it has Russian troops coming over it, and they need to be able to secure that border in order to be a sovereign country. The United States is the only country that can really help them do that. Vinny, I want to bring you back in here. General Chapman, who oversaw the southern border of the United States, realized over a period of time and after reviewing data that closing the border uh, is actually what created the most immigration of Mexican immigrants permanently into the United States, that prior to closing the border, you had the seasonal movement of workers to work on farms in the United States, especially in places like California and the American South, and then during the winter months actually migrate back home. And they were filling a necessary void in the U.S. economy by providing their labor there where there was a shortage of American citizen workers. What do you make of having asylum be the policy that the Senate is considering once they come back rather than perhaps more comprehensive citizenship paths or temporary work permits? Well, I think the situation with temporary work permits is that they've tried to work on that for months and the administration really hasn't helped calls from its own party to support that. You know, Eric Adams in New York City and other areas of the country in Denver, for example, those cities have asked the Biden administration for that kind of help and haven't gotten what they need, which is expedited work permits. That's what they've asked for. But at the same time, uh, the root of this issue, which is uh, something the White House has also tasked the vice president with, we haven't heard anything on them addressing the root causes of migration since February of last year. Um, so it's something that goes straight to the White House. And then in addition, the asylum talks, you know, right now the proposal that the White House is trying to negotiate involves bringing back a Title 42-like policy, which is expelling migrants pretty quickly from the border. But the Border Patrol agents that I've talked to in the last couple of days have said that that really just leads to a lot of recidivism. They don't face consequences for doing that. And so you see a lot of people keep trying to cross and then eventually get through by sneaking in uh, and not facing any penalties. Really All quickly, right. Jen, Jenny, what are you referring to when you say root causes of migration? The root causes of migration is the strategy the Biden administration had put out and tasked the vice president with. She is uh, trying to address several different areas that are causing migrants to come. Uh, in Central America. So the economic issues, the corruption issues, the gang violence, uh, things that they believe need to be addressed to stop the flow coming to the border. All right, Jenny Taylor and Charles McBride, thank you both so much for joining us. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Ready, set, swipe. A very new controversial study shows that the number of Americans who found a partner through an online website or a dating app 
has increased significantly since 1980 from zero to over 50%, while other avenues of meeting someone like through friends and family, work, school, in your neighborhood, or at a bar has declined. So, Amber, what do you think is the best way uh, to meet someone these days? Is it through an algorithm that considers a lot of data points and personal preferences tailored for you, designed to give you a perfect person what you want? Or do you think we have to go back to the older traditional ways? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you can probably guess where I'm going to go with this. But let me just start by saying I did meet my husband on a dating app, so I'm going to sound like a total hypocrite. But I think, generally speaking, it's better to meet someone in person. And the problem that I have with dating apps is I think they really dehumanize the experience and lead to these very impersonal interactions that lead people to feel like the person on the other end of the screen is disposable. There's so many options on dating apps. I probably went on 100 plus dates before I met my husband over the past five, 10 years. Um, and I think people, um, because they have so many options, end up always looking for that next best thing. And I think it's important to remember that love is not just some uh, algorithmic uh, a decision beyond your control. It's not a case where if I have exactly the right things in common with somebody that we're going to fall in love. Love in a lot of ways is very much a conscious decision and a choice that you make every day to work with somebody and be with somebody and put in the dedication to making that relationship work. And dating apps promise to give you your so-called soulmate or perfect match. But until you actually meet someone in person and see how you're able to communicate, I don't think that those things matter quite as much. So obviously I've made it clear where I stand by waiting the fourth response in that tweet that has apparently been very controversial, but I welcome hearing people's opinions on this. I find it fascinating, but I think we spend so much of our social time online. And when I wrote that, I didn't actually mean on like a website dedicated for dating or even a dating app. I guess like, would you consider it through friends of friends if you meet someone via Instagram? Like you see them in a video or in a picture or on TikTok on your For You feed, on Twitter. I met my current boyfriend through Twitter because we're interested in the same kind of economics. And I came up on his feed because professors that he follow were liking a post where I was promoting my new podcast and Stephanie Kelton's book, The Deficit Myth. That's how we met was through a tweet. And so I think there are innocent ways you can meet someone online. I don't want to say innocent. There are organic ways you can meet someone online without intentionally being there to date. I'm like the worst online dater. I've had the apps. I don't I think I've gone on one or two dates ever from an app. So I'm critical of the dating app culture. I think the next best thing phenomena is a huge problem with modern dating. But I also think that meeting someone online is okay and can happen organically, but not be on an intentional dating website. There's definitely an important distinction to be made there. You're exactly right. And I know plenty of people who have also met their significant others that they are now married to on Twitter. I have dated people from Twitter and it's definitely a more organic experience than what happens on a dating app to be sure. I think the proliferation of dating apps as we see a decline in young people either having sex or having relationships 
uh, should ha have us asking questions about whether these things are doing their intended purpose. And we also have to remember, too, that it is not in the interest of the company that owns these apps for you to delete them and not be on them. They say, for example, on Hinge, that it's the dating app meant to be deleted. But if everyone who was on Hinge found a partner and deleted the app, obviously they wouldn't be making any money. And there has been some studies that show that these apps don't show you exactly what your perfect match would be per se, but what they think you want to see. It's kind of the equivalent to how when I'm on Instagram, I keep getting videos of Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey going out to dinner in New York City, and I don't actually want this content, but for some reason I feel myself being drawn to it all the time, and I wish Instagram would stop showing it to me, but yet I always click on it, and I think that's kind of a similar phenomenon to how people behave on dating apps. Yeah, I want to stop dating guys like this, but I keep swiping right on them. Why is this <laughs> happening? Um, I I think you're right. They always advertise, like, designed to be deleted. But are you really? Would you still make money if that was the case? It's a good point. They could be giving us duds on purpose on those apps. So just scroll Twitter, guys. Just <laughs> find someone on your For You feed. Obviously, Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift are taken, but there are many other options on your feed that you will find. I also like that you say, uh, I've dated people from Twitter before, as if they're just always a Twitter person when you meet them there. But I think the, the reason we've seen an increase in dating online since 1980 is because that is when the internet was created. Um, I don't know if it's that people prefer the internet or right now we're so obsessed with being social on the internet and using social media that that's why we've seen it skyrocket. Maybe we'll see it plateau as excitement around being social on the so the internet, uh, using social media declines. Maybe we're in a flux period right now. And slowly, as all of our platforms are moving towards less personal networks and more towards, you know, media content from someone you've never met or it's getting commercialized and you're getting pushed a lot of ads and shopping. I think people are, are getting tired of that kind of content on social media and may pull back and may meet people more in person again. I don't know. But uh, the Internet hasn't always been a factor. It became a factor in 1980. So I don't want to confuse correlation with causation here in the data. Yeah, I do feel like the recent spike that we see on that graph is probably a side effect of the fact that people just don't engage in their community as much. Social media tends to be sort of the meeting place um, for, for people. I mean, people don't go to church as often. They don't go to community centers for whatever reason. I mean, people really did used to go to bowling alleys and bingo and all of these um, little small town events to meet up with their friends or meet up with family friends. And I think one of the underrated reasons why it is good to meet people through friends or through family is that you can kind of filter out who might not share the same values as you. And you also have a rating on that person's potential safety. Obviously not a fail safe, but there have been some situations of friends of mine who have gone out on online dates and have found themselves in some pretty unsafe situations. Um, so the safety aspect of this cannot be ignored as well. Yeah, I have been unsettled in the past with recommendations from friends as to who I should date. Just really, you think this is a person that I would be interested in? I think sometimes friends' recommendations can cause rifts in friend groups. I don't know. I get afraid to date in the friend group. But to your point about being in, in bowling and in social settings, 
where you meet strangers and you befriend strangers. It's weird because it's dangerous to meet people online. We grew up with our parents saying, you know, don't meet strangers on the internet. And now we summon them through these dating apps to go out alone with them in intimate settings, which the more you think about it, the more concerning it is, which is why most people don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. But now we have this this weird kind of animosity with just strangers we're sharing space with in the bowling alley. Like mm-hmm. if a stranger comes up to your friend group that you're bowling with, it's it's almost like, oh, God, why is that guy coming over here? What's he going to say to us? Is he weird? You know, there's there used to be, I think, more of an openness to communicate with strangers. My dad still does it beautifully. So I'm assuming it's an age thing. He will get into very detailed conversations with people who are cashiers at the gas station and i think it's beautiful and lovely and the older i get the more i realize i'm becoming like him but there are people that are very not open to that and you find that out very fast my dad was actually the same way so that's hilarious maybe it's a it's a blue collar dad thing but um to your point i i do feel i think for for both men and women, because women have kind of been conditioned to think that a man coming up to them is always creepy. And that a man doesn't want to go up to a woman to ask her out um, in public because he thinks he's going to be perceived as creepy or as a threat. And so those interactions have really declined significantly from both directions. And I think it just makes people meeting people organically in public a lot harder than if you're on a dating app, you both know what your intentions are, at least in some respect. And so that creep factor kind of goes away. But I hope that we get back to being more open as a society. Certainly the pandemic helped exacerbate a lot of these issues as well. And I just don't think it's good for interpersonal relationships for us to get away from interacting face to face. We're gonna take a quick break and be back with more Rising after this. controversial altar to Satan installed in the Iowa State Capitol has received an unexpected alteration. As the Republic Sentinel reported, Michael Cassidy, a Christian former military officer, officer, tore down and beheaded the Satan altar, claiming, quote, the world may tell Christians to submissively accept the legitimization of Satan, but none of the founders would have considered government sanction of satanic altars inside Capitol buildings as protected by the First Amendment. Cassidy added, my conscience is held captive to the word of God, not to bureaucratic decree, and so I acted. Cassidy's decision to destroy the statue was met with mixed response online. Some argued that this was hypocrisy by the right. One commentator on X noted, The Church of Satan's monument at the Iowa Capitol is a political statement. Vandalizing it is not only a crime, it reminds us one religious liberty is a one-sided principle for Christian conservatives, and two, courage and stupidity are often indistinguishable. Others noted that the left was more than happy to tear down statues of the Founding Fathers, and that turnabout is fair play. As one pastor on X put it, if you celebrated or even shrugged, when statues of Washington, Jefferson, or Lee were torn down, but you sigh or shake your head when a statue of Satan is torn down, then you've been deeply catechized by the world. So, Jessica, I think this guy is a hero. Uh, No surprise there. Um, First of all, the idea that the Satanic Temple is a protected religion under the First Amendment is obviously hogwash. The whole idea of Satanism is anti-religion. That display was put up to mock Christianity. Everything regarding the satanic temple indicates that they're not 
a religion and really don't even consider themselves as such. They basically just do these things to try to troll Christians. So, for example, the Satanic Temple says that they don't even believe that Satan is a real uh, figure. They view him as a literary character who represents things like rebellion and liberty. Um, so I just don't understand the argument, I guess, from some people who watch this saying that they uh, deserve uh, equal religious protection under the First Amendment. I find it fascinating, the whole thing, the comparisons to the, uh, the statues from monuments of the Civil War of folks who were fighting against the Union Army people who are very pro-slavery in their time here on earth. I think, honestly, my take is that any political or very religious statue gives me a weird vibe. This, fine, you wanna take it down? It was ugly. It's not even really about what it stands for for me. It's that if I walked into an abandoned house, let's say there's a reason I'm in there, <laughs> um, perhaps I'm looking at it to purchase it and renovate it. And I see something like this, uh-uh, I'm out of there. I don't know what's going on, what kind of dark energy is around this. It gives me a bad vibe. But political statues, to a lesser degree, also give me a weird bad vibe. To resurrect someone who is a prominent general or politician and have them in stone always there feels imperial to me in an unsettling way. So if you don't like a statue, tear it down. Go ahead. That's my take. I'm not going to de defend any statues that are currently up. If people don't like it and they take it down, fine. Because it seems to me that no matter what way you twist it, the, the true rule of law is whoever has the most power and strength at the time. And as much as we want to pretend that there's legitimacy in the state, the state has power because the state can exert violence against the population. Many people would protest in the United States that stay home because they are afraid of our police force. No matter which way you cut it, strong man rule wins. And if a man's strong enough to tear down the statue, I guess there's no more statue, especially well, if it's ugly. I appreciate that you're at least logically consistent on the issue. And you're right. Our state capitals should not be erecting things that are not beautiful. I mean, part of the reason that we make government buildings beautiful, the reason why we try to beautify our country is to have pride in what we've built for the American citizens, the American populace, to feel like they're living in a place that they can be proud of. I think aesthetic beauty is incredibly important in any society and leads even to higher thinking. Um, but I would also add, just in response to some of the other criticisms of this guy and also what even some supposed conservatives have said about this satanic statue, is they try to defend it again, under the First Amendment, based on the Free Exercise Clause, um, which is a complete misunderstanding of what the Founding Fathers intended um, with that. I can get into that in a second. But also under the idea of free speech. State capitals have never been required to give open air to the profane, to the obscene, um, to, to plenty of things that they find objectionable. I mean, Nikki Haley was not accused of violating the First Amendment when she took the Confederate flag down from the South Carolina state capitol. And certainly, I don't think anyone would object to the idea that a uh, state legislature would be required to put up Nazi paraphernalia under the guise of free speech. And then going back to this idea of freedom of religion applying to Satanism, when the Founding Fathers um, came up with this idea for the First Amendment of the Free Exercise Clause, the idea was that 
religion at the time was defined as something specifically oriented towards God. Now, over time, that, of course, expanded to include other religions like Judaism and Islam. But it was also done with the recognition that freedom of religion would not be expanded or shouldn't be stretched to include an ability for people to use religion as an excuse to justify all kinds of insane practices. Like there's a reason why religious freedom in the United States does not imply, apply to um, indigenous religions that required human sacrifice, right? There's always been limits on that. And Satanism being explicitly anti-religion and anti-God makes it a, an obvious exception to the rule. I think having any kind of religious installation at the Capitol is a weird practice, to, to put it simply. The reason that this was ever a display at the Capitol is because they had holiday displays that were for various religions. Whatever people were celebrating, they could, you know, fill out a form, work with the State Department or the Iowa State Capitol and say, you know, we want to have our time, put up our little our little thing for a holiday. And I guess the Satanists caught wind of this possibility and decided that they would like to participate. I don't know what holiday they were celebrating. I don't know much about Satanism, although I teased Amber that I hail Satan before we did this segment. But I told her I was just kidding, which is true. I am just kidding. But I think it's a funny image. The Iowa Capitol has been the place where many bad policies, in my opinion, have been passed recently, including pulling back protections for, for child workers, making child labor legal. So to me, with the recent policies coming out of the Iowa State Capitol, I thought it was funny imagery to have Satan there, as if they have some kind of deep, dark motivations for their policies. Was it a funny statement, or are they seriously religious Satanists is my question. And did they have a holiday that they were really celebrating? Is it a big prank is a big question I have. Yeah, the Satanic Temple historically was created specifically to challenge legally the idea of free exercise of religion and what they call hypocrisy among Christian conservatives. So they will often do stunts like this to try to make a point. Um, recently, they have been trying to put after-school Satan clubs in elementary schools because there are also what's called good news clubs, which are basically conservative Christian clubs that kids go to and read the Bible. So all of this is intentionally done for a political and legal reason, which is why I say that they obviously don't deserve protection under freedom of religion. They don't actually believe in Satan. They think that he is just a symbol. Um, so I think that the Iowa state legislature, perhaps the attorney general actually, should say, okay, if you think that you have a legal right to this, then let's go to court. Let's fight this up to the Supreme Court, which now has a conservative majority, thanks to former President Donald Trump. And let's see who wins. Let's settle this fight once and for all. For the past two decades, the Satanic Temple has been explicitly trolling Christians and trying to mock us by using government resources. I would posit that they don't have the right to do that. So let's take it to court. Let's have that fight. And I'm very troubled by so many weak-kneed so-called conservatives and Republicans who sit here and take this libertarian approach to everything related to morality in our society, where they think that state capital buildings and government in general has to be value neutral to the extreme. Every 
piece of legislation that we pass comes from a moral framework. And it's not any less legitimate for that moral framework to be based on uh, religious ideology than any other type of moral framework or wherever your morality might come from. So the idea that they are punting on this and acting like there's nothing they can do and throwing their hands up in the air is annoying and exactly why I think Trump rose to power in 2015 and was elected was because conservatives, the conservative base, wanted someone who was willing to actually fight these battles. So I hope someone steps up and do it. This guy, Michael, who uh, beheaded it, I think was on the right track. We'll be back with more Rising after this. D.C. sports fans looking to get their fix will have to cross into Virginia to see their favorite teams. As local news outlets reported, the owners of the Washington Wizards basketball team and Washington Capitals hockey team have made an agreement with Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin to move the teams across the Potomac to nearby Alexandria, Virginia. Reasons for the move include failing and expensive arenas in the District of Columbia, a deal to build new infrastructure in Virginia, and the Capitals' skyrocketing crime rates. D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser is attempting to convince the teams to stay in the nation's capital, but is doing a poor job. During a press conference yesterday, the mayor took a swipe at Virginia traffic while then failing to name the metro lines that fans take to see the teams play. Watch. I'm the D.C. mayor. I'm not an expert on their crime, but that, that traffic is notorious. So people know about it. And um, I think, which lines go to that station? Blue and yellow. Blue and yellow. So every line goes to Gallery Place, uh, right? Red, blue, orange, and yellow. Yellow and green. Is that right? I think that's right. Not that's quite right, embarrassing I'm afraid. to not know the subway. <laughs> it reminds me of when Andrew Yang was running and he said his favorite subway station was Times Square. Buddy, that's nobody's favorite subway station. <laughs> A lot of politicians don't take public transit. Yeah, exactly. And the metro is, of course, completely underwater financially anyway. Um, but just to give the right answer, it is red, green, and yellow. Um, but she points out traffic as being a reason why people shouldn't want to go to sports games in Virginia. The Potomac Yard Metro Station, where this new arena will be located, is actually brand new. They just spent the last two years or so um, shoring up the line that runs to Potomac Yard. I used to live in Crystal City, which is not far down the road. And I will say that if they were going to move the arenas anywhere in Virginia, that's probably the right place for it. They have a lot of land there. There's not much development yet, so there's plenty of space for them to add the other things that they've been talking about, whether it's a training facility, um, new apartment complexes, all of that jazz. There's plenty of space for it. They were already planning on doing a ton of development in Potomac Yard. So just from a location standpoint, this does make sense. Now, I've always been concerned as a Virginian of the potential for these sports, billionaire sports owners to get tons of taxpayer money in order to try to draw their stadiums and arenas to various states. I don't want to pay to subsidize a billion sports team. Definitely not. In this case, I would say that the deal that Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin put together with Ted Leonsis is actually not bad. 
Basically, he just agreed to lease this land to Leonsis for 40 years, and Leonsis will actually pay off the cost of developing this location over that time period. So none of this is coming from existing taxpayer funding, which is great to hear. I also think that this is an obvious self-inflicted wound for Washington, D.C. For a long time, Capital One Center was—well, uh, before that, it was the Verizon Center, but for a long time was sort of the heart of Chinatown. People would flood into the area for all kinds of sporting events. I went to Georgetown, so I would go to basketball games there all the time. And the crime issue has really uh, started to get out of control, specifically in that part of the city. It's kind of Chinatown and Navy Yard that have been the epicenters of a lot of the carjackings and other issues that have been going on, especially with young people in D.C. And so for Mayor Bowser to not acknowledge that the crime problem in D.C. is a big reason why people don't want to go downtown anymore, particularly after the pandemic is really missing the mark. I think Mayor Bowser's got such a rough history on handling crime. First things first, relying on data-driven policy to make decisions about public safety with the lab at D.C. is extremely disconcerting at a time when nearly everyone in America was like, okay, we're seeing that there is a rise of police brutality. We're seeing unarmed black men get murdered. It sounds like what many people want is for police officers to wear body-worn cameras. This was a solution that came out of, of public pressure, and it was a pretty common ground solution when you had calls for defunding the police. This was something that they could do that would improve the community's trust in public safety much more than what it was before. So what does Mayor Bowser do? She decides to run a study with the lab where you have officers broken up into two groups, a randomized control trial, some officers assigned to wear cameras, others not assigned to wear cameras. And then there was measurement of the amount of reports of excessive use of force during the period of the study. Now, they had to consistently report to uh, the, the city council and the mayor the hours of footage that they had logged. And it was minimal. Cops that had worked for six months had one to two hours of footage when they were assigned to wear a camera. It was found that officers were not turning them on during interactions. They were not charging them, so they would be dead for the entirety of the day. And then the finding of this study was that they have no effect. Yes, of course, you didn't have compliance in your study. Of course, the body-worn cameras had no effect on policing behavior. And so the solution then, policy-wise, was we're going to trust this terribly botched study that ran front page on the New York Times and not invest in cameras across the city of D.C. and force all of our officers to wear them and turn them on for every interaction. And then you have the rise of crime, which is also a policy decision by the mayor. When you have so many people coming in as Deloitte consultants to do government and public servicing work, they're purchasing apartments, they're driving up rent costs, they're pushing out DC residents, and you have this gentrification happening and a lack of economic opportunity for people. And the economic opportunity they have is to rob the cars of the consultants coming in and moving to DC, displacing them. There's a lot of policy questions around Mayor Bowser's uh, time in public office in DC. And the way that it becomes such an important topic of having sports teams in a town for politicians, it's absolutely insane. She should focus on increasing economic opportunity, reducing housing costs, and actually doing something about the police force in DC, rather than focusing so much time on keeping a sports team. It's absurd 
that politicians are so obsessed with keeping sports teams uh, in their districts and in uh, their lines cut. Even in city council in L.A., we've seen fights over this. Yeah, the D.C. City Council actually just voted to offer $500 million in renovations to Capital One Arena to try to get the teams to stay. But uh, poverty and gentrification have been a problem in D.C. for the past two, three decades. So I think the idea that the gangs of teenagers running around holding people up at gunpoint, crashing into the back of their cars to use that as an opportunity to carjack people is merely the result of economic disparities I don't think is accurate. There's something specific happening in D.C. over the past five years that has driven up both violent crime as well as these types of crimes of opportunity. And we have to point fingers, I think, at the D.C. City Council. Muriel Bowser admittedly has a very scattered track record when it comes to the way she wants to handle crime. She's been endorsed by the D.C. Police Union over and over again. She has called for actually increasing their budget as the D.C. City Council wants to decrease it, and has generally at least given lip service to the idea that policing needs to be enforced uh, more strongly in the D.C. area. However, she has also signed on to legislation passed by the D.C. City Council that removes a lot of consequences for young offenders. So in D.C., if you're under the age of 25, this was a bill advanced by Charles Allen, one of the D.C. City Council members. If you commit a violent crime, um, including murder, if a, you serve 10 to 15 years and earn good behavior, essentially, you could be released by the time you are 35, 40 years old on a murder charge and numerous other violent crimes. And so they have reduced penalties in many cases or refused to prosecute some of these crimes that young offenders in particular are getting into over the past five or six years with a rise during the pandemic. Um, so they've sent the signal to these people, these kids, that they can hurt people, they can steal, they can hold people at gunpoint, and they're not going to do much prison time. And this has been advanced by the Biden administration as well, where they are trying to push for local and state prosecutors to avoid going after youth gang members. And so what the gangs are doing now is they're actually requiring minors to commit um, the, the murders or the other um, violent crime that they tend to commit through their gang activities because they know that those young people will be out on the street soon again. So criminals are definitely taking advantage of a lot of the crime changes in terms of policy that have been going on in cities for quite some time. Muriel Bowser has obviously a huge part to play in that in both directions. Unfortunately, we're out of time. We'll be back with more Rising after this. We have some developing news out of Ukraine. 26 people are wounded and one is dead after a council member detonated a grenade in the middle of a local government meeting. The entire incident was caught on live stream. The Ukrainska Pravda newspaper identified the man as Serhii Batrin, 
a Ukrainian parliamentarian and co-member of President Volodymyr Zelensky's Servant of the People Party. The explosion was reported to authorities by a woman who viewed it on live stream, Ukrainian Pravda reported. As for where President Biden stands, he made it pretty clear on Twitter posting just moments ago, Ukraine's freedom is on the line, and if we do not stop Putin, it will endanger the freedom of everyone almost everywhere. Joining us now to discuss is humanitarian activist Charles McBride. Now, the man who detonated the grenade is someone who is a veteran and was a lawmaker. What do we make of this incident? What insight, if any, does it give us into the state of Ukraine domestically right now? Thanks so much for having me, Jessica. I, I think this reveals two things uh, about the current situation in Ukraine. The first is that this is a deeply traumatized population. They have been traumatized not just by two years of war, but by almost 10 years of war. If you go back to the Russian annexation of Crimea and the Donbass back in 2014, this is a population that has been gripped in war for the past 10 years. And that has side effects in terms of how the population deals with things. And I think that leads into a second aspect of this, which is the healthcare system in Ukraine and how it has been incredibly challenging for the healthcare system to deal with the, the results of the war in terms of um, all of the additional trauma uh, that's, that's occurred as a result of it, particularly in regards to veterans and mental health. Ukraine is a country that is still trying to sort of enter the modern conception of mental health and have a robust understanding of that. Uh, there have been significant strides in that sense, but it's still important to acknowledge that there's a lot of veterans of this war who are going to be bearing the scars and the trauma of this conflict. Um, and they're going to be taking that into civilian life, both during the war and after the war. And that's something that Zelensky and his administration, as well as just the, 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 the national populace of Ukraine, Ukrainian society is going to have to figure out various ways to reintegrate these people into society because the last thing that you want are a bunch of disgruntled veterans who feel like they were given a raw deal and that's something ukraine is going to have to figure out over the coming years right and something we unfortunately understand all too well in the united states with particularly veterans of afghanistan and iraq charles do we have a sense so far i know you've been on the ground in ukraine of how many soldiers have been injured and how many killed um, because, of course, we have to consider that families are going to bear the uh, trauma from this as well, having lost loved ones or dealing with the potential disabilities that come from these wartime uh, casualties. Right. So the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense indicates that, that something on the order of 200,000 Ukrainian soldiers have lost their lives as a result of this conflict, with hundreds of thousands more wounded, disabled, etc., as a result of the fighting. Um, in addition to civilian populations who are affected both by active shelling and missiles, as well as um, landmines and unexploded ordnance they happen upon when they're plowing their fields or walking through their towns. I've been working with veterans dealing with PTSD issues for the past several years, and I can tell you that these things leave a scar long after the, the actual war ends. And one of the things that's incredibly important in, re in relation to PTSD is people finding purpose in their life. Um, because when they are in the service, they have a, 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 a greater sense of purpose for what they are doing. And after they try and reintegrate into civilian life, um, sometimes it's very difficult for them to find that, particularly if the war that they 
happened to be involved with doesn't seem upon reflection to have been a just war. So the benefit of what's happening in Ukraine is this is a war for national survival. So these people are heroes. They are considered heroes by their, their community, by their society. But once those heroes come home broken and damaged, you have to find a way to reintegrate them. And if you don't do that responsible, responsibly, you're going to see more instances like this. Your recent documentary, Note of Defiance, I watched it. It was quite touching. It really spoke to that resilience of Ukrainians and finding purpose at a time of war. There are many Americans that, that are not sympathetic to the plight of Ukrainians, very skeptical of the money being sent over to Ukraine. Myself, I'm skeptical when any dollar is transferred into the Pentagon's account. $886 billion is far too much to be giving them. But I understand it to be your view that we should give funding and, and aid to Ukraine, but not to Israel. Can you expand on that a little bit? Right. So, I mean, the, a couple parts of your question there. First of all, uh, the documentary that we filmed in Ukraine, Note of Defiance, is a testament to the resilience of the Ukrainian people. And it's specifically designed to portray Ukrainians uh, as having agency. As it, It's very popular in Western media to portray Ukrainian civilians as like tear-stained, soot-covered faces coming off, off of a refugee train. And we wanted to show what we had experienced in Ukraine, which was an incredibly an incredibly strong and resilient population and one that deserved highlighting. We needed to show the story of the people who were just trying to live their lives in the face of cultural extinction. And that's what we tried to accomplish with Note of Defiance. The director, Brian Henderson, approached me last year and said, hey, I'd like you to take me into Ukraine so that I can shoot this film. And the way that he pitched it made me think, this is the story that we need to tell about Ukraine. So that is currently available right now on Prime Video. And we are waiting to hear back about um, it's, it's Oscar and, and BAFTA qualified. And we're waiting to hear back to see if there will be an, a nomination for that film. Now, going into the question regarding Israel, in, in my mind, the United States has a commitment to Ukraine and they have a commitment to Israel. It's had a commitment to Israel for a very long time. And the Ukraine commitment is, is much uh, more recent. However, I have been involved in the human rights in humanitarian aid field now for the past six years. And I think that I have, have learned the ability to distinguish between the aggressor and the victim. And in the case of Russia and Ukraine, I believe that there is a very clear aggressor. The Russian Federation is a revanchist settler colonial state, which is trying to expand and reconstitute its former empire in the Soviet Union. That is in many ways precisely what Israel has been trying to do to Palestine. And it's really confusing to me to see the United States have this public commitment to Ukraine and then turn around and also have a public commitment to Israel and funnel billions and billions of dollars to the Israeli government to the point where we are sponsoring programs like free health care for Israelis, while Americans have no access to anything like that here in the States. Um, and, and we're doing this against a population that's that's crowded into an open air, air open air prison camp and can launch homemade rockets made out of sewer pipes into Israel. And we are giving Israel state-of-the-art military equipment and funneling billions of dollars to them to do so and not brokering any criticism of, of that whatsoever. So in my mind, these are two incredibly distinct issues. You can support Ukraine and also be skeptical of the money going to Ukraine and making sure you're monitoring that. But we should really be identifying the billions and billions of dollars that we have been sending to Israel. 
if it were my decision, I would funnel that money and the weapons going to Israel and I would send that to Ukraine. In my mind, that's a much more important battle for the, for the interests of the United States in that region. And where we put our money, where we put our resources should reflect that. Charles, thank you so much for joining us. That's gonna do it for us today on Rising. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next Friday.